Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. My co-host, Kirk Campbell, is not with us today, but I'm thrilled to be with Jim Shudo, CNN's chief national security correspondent and the newest host of CNN Newsroom. Jim, welcome to Tea Leaves. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Jim has extensive experience covering Asia as a correspondent and spent years reporting from over 50 countries in Asia and around the world. You've interviewed uh, presidents, a lot of luminaries, and uh, we're really thrilled to have you here and a chance to turn the tables on you and inter- interview you today. Um, I want our listeners to know that uh, Jim uh, grew up in New York City, attended Yale University, where you studied uh, Chinese history, which was pretty cool. Uh, graduated in 1992 with a Fulbright scholarship to study in Hong Kong. And after spending time at the University of Hong Kong, you stuck around there and, and reported for Asia Business News and covering the British handover of Hong Kong, which must have been fascinating. And then, of course, you joined ABC, where you eventually became the network's foreign correspondent based in London. And we watched you on ABC over a period of years, and that took you around the world to Iraq and Afghanistan and Iran. Uh, And a big change in 2012 when uh, you joined the State Department and uh, you were the chief of staff and senior advisor to Gary Locke in Beijing when when he was ambassador. And after Beijing, you you joined CNN as the chief national security uh, correspondent. And if that's not enough, you're working on a, a new book that's coming out, and I'll just give it a teaser called The Shadow War Inside Russia and China's Secret Operations to Defeat America. You're a multiple award winner, Emmy Awards, the Edward R. Murrow Award, and most recently, the Merriman Smith Award from the White House Correspondents Association. So again, thank you so much. Um, it's really incredible. And um, we were just talking before we we came in. It's also a, a very interesting time uh, to be a journalist in, in this environment. And, um, you know, uh, it's a critically important service that you're providing to the to the public. So thanks for, for what you're doing and what you have done. Well, that's, that's kind of you to say. I appreciate it. Yeah. So how did... How did you have time uh, to do the book uh, while you're doing all these these other projects? It's it's uh, my writing strategy is uh, trains and airplanes, <laughs> and coffee shops. Uh, yeah. I you know it's I, I sort of I don't say amazed, but I but I meeting the manuscript deadline. I, I had this kind of lingering doubt throughout because we made the plan for this end of last year and then had to started in January and had to hand the thing in by the end of July. So I, I wrote a book about 10 years ago. And what I found with that was just hit your monthly word targets. And if yeah, you do that, right. it kind of takes the pressure off. So I just was very conscious of 10,000 words a month and 2,500 words a week and just finding time to do that. Uh, but bigger picture, I, I had the, I'd done the reporting, uh, most of the reporting, and I had the idea in my head of how to bring it together. So, so once I had that, I could kind of fill in those, those spaces um, and, and go from there. That said, um, when I handed it in, there was, a, there was an enormous amount of uh, relief. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. But, you've, but you've got uh, Russia and China, secret operations mm-hmm. to defeat America. You want to give folks just a, sure. a sense of, of what you're covering? So the idea is this, is that there is a below-the-radar war 
on the U.S. by Russia and China, not together, but that both of them using similar strategies uh, with similar goals in mind. And and for, for Russia, it, it's known as the Gerasimov Doctrine, and, and this is a their kind of equivalent of army chief of staff or military chief of staff who articulated this in, in an essay of, in 2013. Uh, from their perspective, it's, a, it's about fighting uh, below the threshold of a shooting war, in mm. effect, pushing the limits. And that is, for instance, annexing Crimea without a shot or, or destabilizing eastern Ukraine with many shots, but below a level where they think they will spark a, a response from the West or NATO, etc., interfering in an election. Um, uh, certainly cyber attacks to destabilize in other ways, mm -hmm. look for vulnerabilities in our critical infrastructure, uh, and even things like testing and deploying space weapons. The mm -hmm. U.S. is enormously dependent on space assets, and that, that goes for our military, but also you and me, um, communications, you know, financial transactions, et cetera, and, and, and looking for those vulnerabilities so that they can hold us back now, and in the event of a, uh, an escalated war, they can seriously compromise the U.S., um, uh, despite America's military advantage. China's approach is, is a little bit different, but, but, but in a similar vein, they, they articulate it this way of, of winning without fighting. And you see that, I mean, for instance, an enormous land grab in, in the South China Sea, without firing a shot, and you, you now have, they're now been militarized despite promises uh, to, to the U.S., uh, stealing state and, and, and business secrets over time with, with the explicit, I mean, they, they articulate this, this is explicit attention, intention of narrowing the gap with the U.S., but also, if there were a conflict, being able to, to beat the U.S. So what, what I'm trying to do is, to, there are a lot of pieces to this, and I think most folks out there who watch the news, read the newspapers, etc., are aware of these things individually. And my intention here was to draw those together and say, hey, these are not random acts. These are part of a strategy. And uh, the U.S. is catching up, and you see it in our defense strategy, et cetera. But we were slow to catch up, um, and there's a long way to go. That's, that, that's the idea of the shadow it's war. In, it's interesting that you've grouped Russia and China together in the mm. same study as well. Because um, a lot of people don't do that. They think the um, the approaches, as you said, are different. Um, but I think this will be really interesting to look at the two of them together. It, it was just interesting to see these pictures of Putin and yeah. um, the Chinese uh, premiere the other day, at like what looked like a fish fry or something. Yeah, making but, pancakes. <laughs> exactly. But they're spending a lot of time together. They days. are. And, and they're doing, they're right in the midst of major military exercises, which yeah. are principally Russian, but there's a Chinese contingent in it. And I, and I don't mean to indicate that the two of them are working together on yeah. this. Um, the, the general view is that, you know, Russia's essential approach is to, uh, you know, fight the U.S. by bringing the U.S. down. It's a, it's a zero-sum game. If you're losing, we're winning. And China's intention, and again, I'm simplifying here, and you know this better than me, China's intention is to surpass the United States o over time. Uh, but, it, but it strikes me that you know, I, I put them together because anytime I sit down, when I, I was had dinner last night with one of the uh, directors of the intel agencies, whenever you ask them for top threats to the U.S., it is always Russia and China. Yes. Some will some will put China at the top, some will put Russia, but invariably it's the two together with with differences. Um, but at the end of the day, those are the those are the kind of defining battle. I don't want to say battles. Uh, competitions, sure. perhaps, uh, sure. of, of our time. But you've had a long-standing interest in China, mm -hmm. and I would 
go back to something I mentioned in the bio about your studying Chinese history. I mean, that seems a, a long way off from where you grew up in New York City and kind of attending uh, Catholic school for 12 years. You know, what, what drew you to study <laughs> Chinese and then live in, in well, Hong it's a, Kong? It's an yeah. interesting story, although, you know, as, as you know, my nephew works with you and others, is that we, we're an Italian-Irish family, but we, we think we must have some distant Chinese relative because <laughs> several of us, I have two sisters who have spent uh, a certain periods of time in China and in Asia. Um, so we have we have this kind of interest that sort of came from somewhere, but I know for me, and maybe this was uh, part of the origin, uh, in May 1989, I was uh, in my freshman year in college, and that's around the time when you tend to pick your, your major, and my sister at the time was living in Taiwan, one of my sisters, and another of my sisters and my parents went to visit her, and they went on a uh, kind of a tourist trip through mainland China. They went to Xi'an, they went to Beijing. Anyway, they found themselves in Beijing in late May 1989 mm. in the midst of the protests. We have family photos of them. I wish as a kid I would joined them, of them with the protesters in there. My mother wrote an essay about being an accidental witness to history, etc. Wow. They left the day martial law was declared. And as they continued their trip around Asia, events unfolded as we know. In fact, my mother, I just came across these the other day, had saved a bunch of wow. newspaper headlines uh, from them. Uh, so I'm picking my major, and, and, and at Yale at the time, there were a lot of history majors, you know, mm -hmm. history majors, folks who don't know what they're going to do with their lives. <laughs> uh, a lot of them were American political history majors, a lot of European history. And I said, there's something going on in China, and I want to know more about it. And there was a guy named Jonathan Spence who knows a thing or two about China, who was the, you know, uh, not the head of the department, but he had just written this book in search of modern China, and he taught that course. And so I said, I'm going to take a different course here. And, and that was the beginning. And that has continued through your reporting and through your writing. And I assume that's obviously still a strong interest of yours. It is for sure. Yeah. No question. Now I want to, it seems like, uh, you've been at all these critical events, uh, in Asia over the last and middle East over the last, uh, decade or so. And I'm thinking back to your reporting from Myanmar, uh, mm -hmm. in 2007. And, uh, in fact, you won an award, uh, an Emmy award for that coverage. Um, I want to, maybe you could just tell the listeners about, why that was so significant and how you got into the country because mm -hmm. it's um it's a really interesting story yeah it was a so this 2007 the saffron revolution as they called it after right. that kind of golden color of the monks robes it, it was in a way the first uh popular uprising of the digital age to some degree or not the digital i should say the cell phone age right mm -hmm. because you 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 know this is a largely closed country under the junta but but it was difficult for them to stop these images getting out, and you had, uh, you know, these very powerful images of monks with their shaven heads, bleeding, beaten, uh, imprisoned, etc. And of course, they closed down the country to journalists. Uh, but I, I got myself a tourist visa by applying in the London embassy, where I had heard that there was some sympathetic. Burmese officials who did not like what was happening there. Um, they probably knew I was a journalist. It wouldn't have taken much. I mean, so Google was certainly around then, mm -hmm. but they gave me a tourist visa. So I went to a little border crossing. I didn't go through the main from Thailand, just thinking there wouldn't have been the best uh, uh, oversight there um, with a cameraman. And we had a small digital camera, went in, but in light of the tensions, they were smart enough to take the camera away. Mm. So now I'm in there with that. And this is the early days of phone cameras, um, you know, flip phone with right. a little video. You remember right. how grainy that stuff was. 
Uh, but we said, let's, let's just soldier on. And we went in and we spent uh, about a week in there traveling around the country and just shooting on that phone and came out and did our TV pieces with very grainy video. Um, but we're able to speak to folks who'd been in prison, pe- speak to folks who'd uh, seen protesters murdered, beaten, etc., I just gave a vision in, inside there. It's amazing. It's also, you know, uh, what you're telling uh, is a common story replicated over and over again about reporters facing, you know, some pretty um, pretty risky situations. And um, many have, have yeah. given their lives in the coverage of, of news. It is. And, you know, with, with the wars, you spent a lot of time in Iraq and Afghanistan, a uh, dozen times each, and sadly had some colleagues injured and killed, you know, where you... You know, the, the time where you might wear a press, you know, uh, you know, thing in your helmet or something to identify yourself as off limits. Of course, that changed in this environment. In fact, if anything, you're more of a target because you're press and you saw that with, I mean, just folks in Syria, too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a different operating environment in these places. What do you... Um... You know, I want to come back to Myanmar in a second, but I just want to maybe capture something from current events. When you hear uh, kind of people refer to the press as enemy of the people mm. and and kind of enemy of the state, and and yet you've done this service throughout the Middle East and Asia, your colleagues over decades and decades and decades, right? I mean, this is um, this is really critically important and oftentimes really dangerous work. What? What goes through your mind when you when you hear that? Yeah, it's it's un-American, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I've been to places, China included, where reporters are targets, right? I mean, reporters are are, are deeply restricted at a minimum, mm-hmm. sometimes abused, sometimes imprisoned, etc. In Russia, a place where journalists are out and out killed, you know, uh, certainly in the war zones, Iraq, Afghanistan. Let's be fair, let's be fair and clear. We don't face those circumstances here in the U.S., but we are attacked publicly, and that creates conditions where you worry about folks acting on that because there's certainly a lot of anger directed um, uh, directed at us. So that's a concern. It's a concern to my colleagues and my bosses, and, and we have to take steps to respond to that, right? Because it's a real threat. I will say though that on the flip side, the positive side of it is that. In the last two years, I've been stopped more times than in the previous 25 years as a journalist by Americans saying, hey, listen, we just really appreciate what you guys yeah. are doing. Yeah. And that's that's yeah. gratifying. I think it's a measure of one genuine thanks that people realize the importance, but also I think people are more engaged. They're, they're paying more attention now, which is also a positive too. You know, in, in the midst of some negatives, there, there's a positive that people are paying attention. Yeah. You mentioned uh, this happens in other places, obviously, in China. Mm. I mean, there's obviously a common thread here um, when people start to go after the press. Um, and, and, you know, I, I hate to even uh, say this phrase, but I just wanted to ask you when, when we hear the phrase fake news, mm. you know, this is this is not something I, I want to give much credence to, but this is obviously not a new phrase either, and it's mm-hmm. been used before. I mean, what, what should people do when they when they hear that sort of thing? They're, because there clearly is um, fake information yeah. mm-hmm. spiraling around uh, social media, for example, and how to distinguish between 
kind of facts and information yeah. and and what people are doing to manipulate um, information. I mean, how, how do you... It's a shame that, that politicians here have, uh, and others have jumped onto that bandwagon, right? Because there is fake news. And we've, we saw that in the election. We see it today. Fake news has been weaponized by foreign adversaries to influence the American political process. Uh, and not just the American political block, across Europe and in their own countries. Uh, you know, there's an Orwellian quality to, to that. Um, so to attach uh, that uh, accusation to the media when there's news that you find inconvenient or critical is one, wrong, because um, there is fake news and that's not the same thing. And two, it's damaging because it, you know, there's a certain portion of the population that buys it. You know, I see, I, ca I catch that stuff on, on uh, social media and I, you know, you try to tune it out, but you don't even have to look in, you know, in tiny little bot accounts, right? You, I mean, you hear it from the president yeah. and, and the, his allies. Does it create uh, extra burden or pressure on you to really get stories right, to fact check to the nth degree yes. that you maybe wouldn't have done before? Absolutely. Like you're feeling kind of the scrutiny in a way that maybe you haven't. Yes, absolutely. And I'll tell you, I have never, I've been in the news for 25 years, I have never been through more rigorous vetting hmm. or been pushed to reach a higher standard in my reporter reporting in my life. And we work damn hard at getting it right. And we are challenged by our bosses and standards people and lawyers, et cetera, so that we know and we're precise. I mean, I I've never been I haven't <laughs> never been in longer meetings in my life. Uh, you know, particularly on the stories where you're really pushing the limits, you yeah. know. And it's, you know, that's what I say to people all the time. And and I say, if you don't believe that, I got three kids and I got to get them through college. I've, I've got zero incentive to, right. you know, right. to risk my to risk my reputation or or to be glib or or lazy. Yeah. No, I would. Let me just say thank you for what you're doing and for your, what your colleagues are doing. I want to go back to your reporting in the field and um, specifically some of the war zones that you've mm -hmm. been in, in both um, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and I wonder, you know, what that was like for you. And you, you fielded a lot of reports from there. And just what you saw about, you know, not only how our troops are performing, but our mm -hmm. diplomats and development experts, and, you know, it gives you a whole sense, different view of, of what our, not only what our policy is, but how we're trying to how we're trying to effectuate a yeah. positive outcome in these places. Well, I think people should know if they don't know that, that the U.S. through its two longest wars, which of course are continuing, has an enormous number of dedicated people out there. And that goes for the soldiers risking their lives, but diplomats, uh, private sector folks too. I mean, journalists, I mean, I, I'm not, I, I don't think you have to say they're heroes, but you have people willing to take risks with good intentions. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and that always amazes me, and and to this day, and they are real risks, you know. I mean, there's sacrifices being far away from home, and the diplomats on those postings, they have to leave, as you know, their families behind, you know, mm -hmm. this kind of thing. Uh, and then there's the actual danger you you face, and that's um, gratifying and encouraging, you know, that people are still you know, people believe in America's mission and and role in these places. Now, America's made a lot of mistakes, you know, in these in these in these places too, and you've seen those. Um, and, uh, you know, I feel particular, uh, empathy for the soldiers because 
we have as a country and continue to lean on a tiny sliver of the population right. that is just not fair or healthy, it seems to me. And you see that. I mean, when, when you see these folks, they'll have 10, 11, 12 deployment. It's never happened before in right. our country. It didn't happen in Vietnam. It right. didn't happen in World War II. Right. Uh, and, and you have a whole host of carry-on effects from that in terms of PTSD and suicide rates and, and that kind of thing. And we have to find a better way. Yeah, I think and we're now into Afghanistan being the longest yeah. uh, conflict and, yeah. and still pretty tough conditions. The, the new U.S. commander in Afghanistan, we were just doing the story the other day, and, and he had been one of the first uh, troops on the ground mm -hmm. in the invasion. Uh, but it struck me, we're 17 years out, that it's possible likely during his time in command, he'll command people who were not born on 9-11. Wow. You know, not crazy. When you when you st take a step back and you look at the different theaters that we're in and obviously very uh, different engagements now with uh, Syria as well. Um, are you able to kind of draw any common threads about what's what's happening in the in the region? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, th I feel like oftentimes we are always a step behind. We we're we're missing kind of um, anticipating what's happening next. So ISIS, I think, was not something people mm -hmm. you know were actively talking about until it was too late. Mm -hmm. uh, What's happening in Syria? It seems intractable. Uh, we've got the conflict in Yemen. I mean, as we step back, uh, are these are are you able as a you know as a former kind of correspondent in this area and and a national security correspondent? What what do you see happening yeah. in in this part of the world? Or are they really just these are different kind of engagements? Uh, a lot of times tribal fights that have to be yeah. resolved by by locals. Well, it's interesting. You know, of course, you know, just coming off the 9-11 anniversary, of course, our, our American tendency is always to look, through, look at it through the lens of terrorism, right? Yeah. And, that, and that is a, and the rise of ISIS, you know, post-Al-Qaeda shows us that, you know, uh, you remember when we were talking about, you know, Al-Qaeda being a thing of the past. And, and first of all, no one in counterterrorism will tell you they're a thing of the past. They're still doing their best. Right. Um, and now you have ISIS and you have sort of the children of Al-Qaeda groups out there. But when you look at the region, you know, is that the principal con conflict or is it really a Sunni-Shiite thing? Is, is it now you this kind of Iran versus the, the Gulf states and playing out in Yemen and, and, and in Syria as well? And then you have, you know, the, this sort of great power competition that we're seeing around the world, uh, you know, Russia, China playing out there too. You have right. Russia reestablishing itself as a, you know, there's a reason Russia wants a base in the Med, you know, or, or a military base there. And there's a reason Russia and China as part of these exercises are playing around in the Med. That's a, that's a signal to the U S and to NATO, you know, that you have, it's more than just the kind of crushing, which is extremely important, the, the, the terror threat there to the extent you can, it's this other larger conflict. And what, you know, what side is the U.S. on in that? Is, is it affecting U.S. interests in, in its current playing of that game? Yeah. It looks like Syria is about to be a win for Russia and Iran, you know, and, and Assad, which is pretty remarkable when you it, think about it. It is, it is remarkable. And, and you, and depressing, and mm. you've spent a fair amount of time in Iran as well. Yeah. And uh, 
you were there in 2009 mm-hmm. when the revolution was uh, at least this kind of uprising mm-hmm. of, of students and others on the street were taking place. Did we, um, I mean, the, the critique of the Obama administration was at that point was we were too slow. Mm-hmm. We didn't really anticipate what was happening and we didn't galvanize behind folks strong mm-hmm. enough. Maybe you could give us just a sense of what you saw there. Was there an opportunity to really turn things? I know it's a challenging question. <sighs> Turn things if you mean like re- regime change to well, that extent, or, or I mean, um, give the folks on the street who support. are out there taking a chance, maybe yeah. a little better chance of success. Yeah. There was definitely frustration there talking to folks because they, you know, there's one of those kind of ironies of the you know the region is that you know the U.S. is reviled and then uh, at certain times and and. Uh, you know, admired at other times, sometimes at the same time, right? You know, and, and there's a little, you know, you can't win, you know, you're either too involved or not involved enough. Um, but that that folks certainly in Iran, and some of this you can get, a, you know, there's a little, depending on what part of the country you're in, because obviously you're, if you're in North Tehran and you're talking to those folks, uh, they're more likely to have some admiration for the West or at least some change along those lines. But there was definitely frustration there that they weren't getting the attention they expected, or even the attention in the U.S. media. They're like, "Why aren't you, you know, why aren't you covering us more?" Um, so, you know, that frustration is definitely there. Um, what could the U.S. have done? You know, let's say that the Obama administration was more vocal, and I, I just personally think that they certainly could have been. Um, what difference would it have made? Then, you, of course, you always have the challenge of if you identify yourself with right. the dissidents, right. are they then an easier target? You know, it's it's a tough one. It's yeah. a tough one. You've also been um, back in in uh, in recent years, and I really fascinating uh, show that I I pulled up and saw your reporting from the uh, former American embassy in in Tehran. Mm-hmm. And uh, how they had turned it into a bit of a pro- yeah. propaganda uh, museum, yeah. uh, which is really crazy. Yeah, I mean, I don't... it's amazing. I mean, they have that place uh, in the basement where they put together the shredded documents. Yeah. You know, it's remarkable. They really did have a team of women and children that managed to to do that. Um, listen, that uh, and that's still a kind of iconic spot. You know, they're they're in town, and that's the way a big portion of the country. Still, I mean, with pride, I mean, it's it's always hard. You you have a you have like in any country, I mean, particularly there, you know, you have extremists running the place. You have some folks who who have pride in the revolution, but are frustrated with the current leadership. Right? They think of taking it too far. It's I, I think there's always a tendency to look at these things as black and white, and yeah. very clear, and those are the good guys, those are the bad guys. But it's 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 so much more complicated. That mm-hmm. one thing I always tell folks is that when I go to Iran. Uh, people are a heck of a lot warmer to me as an American. You know, there's people on the street yeah. than when I say go to go to Pakistan, yeah. right? You know, or or Saudi Arabia. You know, yeah. you know your allies, and you know these are complicated things. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I want to I want to talk about your. Um, you took a break from journalism mm-hmm. for a couple of years, and and you served in Beijing in the embassy there. Um, how did that happen, and what was that like for you? It was, well, it, it was not really planned. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I met Ambassador Locke in Washington mm-hmm. and we just got to talking and, you know, he was about to go out there and, mm-hmm. and I had this long-term interest in China. So mm-hmm. it became a longer conversation than, than typical. And my wife and I, we had just moved back from 10 years in London 
back to DC, and that's always a hard kind of reentry. You know, mm-hmm. you have all this. You know, every story assignment I took from there was to some exotic place. You know, right. And then you're back in DC. You're like, huh? Okay, <laughs> am I going to go to Northeast today or right. Northwest? <laughs> right. Right. Um, so there was a little like a difficult reentry aspect to it, but um, it, it was the China interest, and it was he. He came to me and he said, "Listen, would you?" Uh, ever considered I can take one person with me as a you know that I can choose myself would you consider taking a turn like this and my wife and I just we discussed it both personally sure we're like we had young kids um and we're thinking well we put them in Chinese school maybe they'll learn Chinese it'd be an interesting uh adventure you know I, I looked at it as will I learn something here right and um both about how things work on the inside of government but about the state of the U.S.-China relationship, and my big picture view was this was, you know, this really is a Pacific century, and, you know, this will be the defining relationship of my time. So then it, then it was, I don't want to say it became a no-brainer, because there were a whole host of things to consider, but it was really hard to say no, so we said yes. <laughs> and were you, were you worried about uh, leaving journalism behind, and that the re-entry, people, people might say, well, you know, he's, he's not a... Uh, uh, Kind of, he's lost his purity as a journalist because yeah. he went off and did government service. I asked a lot of people that question before, yeah. and there's never a hard answer with that. Yeah. But the general feeling was this is not a political job. It's right. a, it's more, a, you know, you're in China, you're in the embassy, you're doing your best to get involved in those issues w- between the U.S. and China, which which transcend administrations. Right? You're talking about human rights, talking about uh, some press freedom was a, was a big thing uh, while we were there. Um, uh, you're talking about unfair trade practices, right? I mean, the, the, none of this stuff, none of those issues is new, and that that was really our fo- our focus. Was it? Um, did it surprise you after covering kind of the from the outside uh, mm-hmm. all these folks for many years, and all of a sudden you were on the yeah. inside? Were you uh, surprised, alarmed? <laughs> I wasn't um, alarmed, but I yeah. think it's it it helps it, it helps to understand. Yeah. You know, that you have this impression that government with all its tools, you know, the intelligence agencies and yeah. the State Department and, you know, why not such a, you know, at the end of the day, everybody's trying to make decisions with imperfect information yeah. and imperfect judgment. And that sometimes creates good decisions and sometimes creates bad decisions. Um, I think you also, you know, learn that in general, folks are doing their best. Right, folks are doing their best to to get it right. And don't always get it right. That's exactly right. I mean, my when I think about our uh, time in in Delhi, um, just have people working really hard, mm-hmm. not knowing if you're going to have exactly the perfect outcome, but you're you are just kind of doing your best. And that's mm-hmm. every agency of the government that's there, or Marines that are out in front mm-hmm. of the embassy. So it's it's quite a group of um, quite a group of people. Now your um, your wife is also correspondent mm-hmm. uh, for ABC. With ABC, yeah, we met we met at ABC. We actually met on assignment in Baghdad because no that's where all great romances start. Right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now how do how do you juggle both of those um, kind of uh, demanding careers? Uh, your kids at home, your book, your research. I mean, it must be you juggle okay. and you're constantly, you know, that there are balls in the air at any given moment. You know, we. Uh, um, we just do our best, and we found a way. And I think both of us, being journalists, we we respect each other's career and understand the craziness of it. So we just we, we just kind of know that sometimes you're going to get a call, say, "Hun, I got to hop on a plane to go X," or and and then I equally she'll say the same to me. Right. You know, I got to hop on. It was just the other day she went on a trip. Um, so there's a lot of stuff for Nightline. When 
out with uh, on a whaling boat on the north coast wow. of Iceland. Wow. And when she called me up, she's like, um, I've got to go on this whaling ship. And I was like, oh, of course you do. Let's, right. uh, let, when, when do you leave? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Do you, um, do you anticipate going back overseas at some point? It seems like your heart is kind of abroad in, in some ways. Um, it's tempting, you yeah. know, always. I mean, part of that would be a family calculation, right? Yeah. Now that you're back and kids in school, et cetera. But, you know, I suppose my attitude is never, never say never. Yeah. Know? Well, that's amazing. Um, tell us about the time slot for the show on CNN. It's from 9 to 11 each morning. 9 to 11 every morning, Monday through Friday. My, okay. my, my co-anchor is Poppy Harlow. Got an enormous amount of respect for her. We're on the same page about just being very no-nonsense. Ask hard questions of both sides. Uh, stick to the facts. We're not big fans of editorializing or anything along those lines and and uh, really looking forward to that. I'm going to keep my national security portfolio, so I'll be reporting as well, but uh, it's going to be be fun. That's great. Well, I I really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, For all of our listeners, uh, check out Jim on on CNN, and also uh, you can order the book, The Shadow War, coming out when? May 2019 is the current plan. May 2019. Okay, so so look for that. I also just want to, again, back to what, what I said earlier, thank you for what you and all your, your colleagues are doing to try to bring us information at a, at a pretty tough time. That, that's kind of you. I, I yeah. appreciate it. And I appreciate what you as a diplomat did for a long time and your, your colleagues that are still out there. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time.